Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden wrapping up his visit to Israel, yet facing complicated foreign policy issues. What is he saying about Iran and his next stop, Saudi Arabia? The Biden administration facing a lawsuit over its latest abortion rules. Texas accusing a federal agency of forcing hospitals to perform abortions. The doctor who performed an abortion on a 10-year-old allegedly broke federal law, but not because of the abortion. The Indiana AG investigates. The surge in illegal immigration continues, but where do unaccompanied minors go after they're detained? Over 1,000 miles away from the border, a 100-acre school campus is becoming a home. Mexican drug cartels are not only using people to get drugs across the border, they have also been using drones. Nearly every day, transnational criminal organizations use drones to convey narcotics and contraband across U.S. borders. Another radio host leaves a Latino radio station in protest of its new ownership. He says he's wary of the new owner's intentions and warns that many in the community feel betrayed by the acquisition. Ennis Cantor Freedom had some choice words for LeBron James, who commented on Brittany Griner's detention and the U.S. response. The latest on Biden's Middle East trip. Meeting with Israeli leaders today, the president affirmed ties between the two countries. This as Biden faces questions over his upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia. Let's take a look. Receiving a warm welcome from the Israeli president. President Biden affirming U.S. and Israeli ties on the second day of his high-stakes trip to the Middle East. America's commitment to Israel's security remains ironclad today and in the future. And at the center of that commitment are efforts to deter Iran. The U.S. said in a Thursday joint statement that it's ready to use, quote, all elements of his national power to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. But how to do that remains a question of debate. While Biden says, I continue to believe that diplomacy is the best way to achieve this outcome. The Israeli prime minister dismisses the diplomacy route, highlighting tensions over Biden's push to revive the Iran nuclear deal. Diplomacy will not stop them. The only thing that will stop Iran is knowing that if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. All this as Biden is pressed with questions over his controversial trip to Saudi Arabia. What would you say to Saudi leaders, specifically to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, about the Khashoggi murder and other human rights practices? Biden's upcoming meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince has drawn backlash over the regime's human rights record, in particular over the killing of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which U.S. intelligence said was approved by the Saudi Prince. Yet Biden on Thursday declined to say he would press the Khashoggi murder. I always bring up human rights, but my position on Khashoggi has been so clear. If anyone doesn't understand it in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else, then they haven't been around for a while and the president insisting that the visit is in U.S. interests. I want to make clear that we can continue to lead in the region and not create a vacuum, a vacuum that is filled by China and or Russia. Biden's Friday trip to Saudi Arabia also comes as pressure mounts at home over soaring inflation. While Biden has insisted that he's not there to ask them for oil, U.S. officials do expect oil production to be a topic of discussion. And back on the Hill, service members are up on the cusp of seeing increases of their salaries. In Congress today, lawmakers spent hours on the House floor working to pass a national defense budget of over $800 billion. Historic increases are in this bill. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. A rare moment unfolding on the floor of the House. Democrats and Republicans coming together on a defense spending bill. Uh, I think this has been an incredibly inclusive process, starting in the committee in a bipartisan way um, and moving to the floor where we've had the opportunity for all members to contribute and participate in this process. I think we have a good product. Lawmakers spent two days finalizing the annual national defense bill. Members on both sides have agreed to a historic top-line number, $840 billion to fund military initiatives at home and abroad. 
With the growing geopolitical threat from China and Russia, the bill requires the Pentagon to brief Congress on coordination between the People's Republic of China and Russia. But we also have a looming recruiting crisis uh, on our hands. I'm very concerned about the inability of any of the services to meet their recruiting goals, and we are going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about that problem and how we fix it. The bill aims to recruit more service members and gives them a 4.6% pay raise and bonuses to counter inflation. Uh, it strengthens our security, including investments in the next generation of our tech defense technology. One example of this is a $275 million investment in technology, including hypersonics, electronic warfare, and artificial intelligence. There's also a $37 billion boost for the Pentagon. Democrats and Republicans have voiced strong support for the new defense budget, which now totals up to much more than President Biden's initial request of $773 billion. This is the largest increase in defense spending in history. It's tens of billions of dollars more than President Biden initially requested. Lawmakers cite the reasons for the need to increase this funding is to give more money to Ukraine, account for inflation, and counter threats posed by China. Upon passing the House, it's off to the Senate, then off to the White House for the president's signature. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A former CIA staffer was convicted yesterday for handing over a large cache of internal documents to WikiLeaks. Prosecutors called it, quote, one of the most brazen and damaging acts of espionage in American history. A federal jury in Manhattan convicted 33-year-old former CIA computer programmer Joshua Schulte on all nine counts. The charges include illegal gathering of national defense information and illegal transmission of unlawfully possessed documents. Prosecutors say Schulte leaked the information in 2017 because he had resentment against the CIA. Schulte argued that he was innocent and that the CIA was framing him. Schulte worked for an elite CIA team that designed some of the agency's most sensitive and secretive hacking tools. Schulte will also face a separate trial for allegedly possessing child pornography. Authorities said they found the illicit material on his computer while investigating the leak. He has, not, he has pleaded not guilty. Texas is suing the Biden administration over its rules on abortions. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is accusing a federal agency of forcing abortions in his state. Here are the details. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, published new guidance requiring hospitals to perform abortions in the case of medical emergencies. This would supersede any state restrictions on abortion. The HHS is doing so by using the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. In response, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton on Thursday filed a lawsuit against the HHS, calling the department's use of the act unlawful. In a statement, Paxton said, The Biden administration seeks to transform every emergency room in the country into a walk-in abortion clinic, and that the act does not authorize and has never been thought to authorize the federal government to require emergency health care providers to perform abortions. He went on to say, I will ensure that President Biden will be forced to comply with the Supreme Court's important decision concerning abortion, and I will not allow him to undermine and distort existing laws to fit his administration's unlawful agenda. NTD reached out to the HHS for comment, but didn't hear back before airtime. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And more updates on the 10-year-old rape victim we reported on. The doctor who performed the abortion has been reported for a possible violation of federal law, and the Indiana AG is looking into it. The doctor responded to the whole ordeal on Twitter after staying in the background for the past few days. Dr. Caitlin Bernard, who said she performed the abortion, took to Twitter saying, My heart breaks for all survivors of sexual assault and abuse. I am so sad that our country is failing them when they need us most. According to Fox News, the doctor's employer filed a HIPAA violation against her because she talked to the press about her patient. A federal law says that, patient, that a patient's personal information can't be shared without consent. 
Indiana's attorney general is also investigating whether Dr. Bernard reported the abortion, since abortions performed on preteens must be reported immediately, according to a state law. And Telemundo claims to have talked with the mother of a little girl. They published an interview with a woman who says that everything people say about the alleged rapist is a lie. It's not clear why she spoke in his defense. And the federal government is spending a lot of money to manage illegal border crossers. They're even spending $50 million to convert a school campus into a home for unaccompanied minors. Well, they need more. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. This 100-acre campus used to be the home of the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. But in 2019, the school abruptly closed its doors, and now it's a new home for illegal immigrant children. A representative for the school, William Scarborough, said in an email to NTD, this is a project of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. HHS conducted the search, assessed the campus, and selected this. HHS operates an unaccompanied children program, which is managed by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. The ORR manages and funds approximately 200 state-licensed facilities and programs in 22 states. Immigration expert Laura Reese of the Heritage Foundation said this campus is not what a typical facility looks like. Well, they vary, but th this, is, this one is remarkable. But HHS is responsible for housing immigrant children and uh, spending an exorbitant amount of American taxpayer money uh, to house these children. Reese said this all goes back to a law that was passed in 2008, which encourages families to send their children. And it gives them immigration benefits for coming here for the sole fact that they are unaccompanied alien children. Uh, it is a very perverse system, and it subjects them to very, a very dangerous journey. She said anyone who wants to cross the border must have at least indirect contact with drug cartels. What kind of message does this program send to other families that live in impoverished countries? Well, it tells other families that they, too, should send their children unaccompanied across the border uh, and that they will not only get into the U.S., but uh, be resettled here in, in very nice conditions. We reached out to the Department of Health and Human Services, but didn't hear back before broadcast time. In May 2021, Rhino Times reported that HHS spokesperson Lee Stevens said in a letter to state partners, though ORR has worked to build up its licensed bed capacity and currently funds over 14,160 licensed beds, the highest in the program's history, additional capacity is critical in order to continue to provide a safe place for children to be released from Border Patrol stations. According to Rhino Times, Stevens also stated HHS has added more than 14,000 emergency intake site beds to address the COVID-19 pandemic and the increasing number of unaccompanied children. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And Mexican drug cartels are using drones to transport drugs and other illegal items across the border. It was confirmed in a Senate hearing today that there have been thousands of illegal drone flights across the southern border in less than a year. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Nearly every day, transnational criminal organizations use drones to convey narcotics and contraband across U.S. borders. Samantha Vinograd is the Acting Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention and Law Enforcement Policy for Homeland Security. She spoke at a Senate hearing on protecting the U.S. from unmanned aircraft systems. In fact, CBP has detected more than 8,000 illegal cross-border drone flights at the southern border just since August 2021. Senator Portman then asked her to assess the Department of Homeland Security's current performance, encountering the use of drones for cross-border illicit activity. Senator, thank you. I share your concern about transnational criminal organizations and the malicious use of drones uh, over the border. But Vinograd did not answer his question right away, so the senator asked more directly. Of these 8,000 flights, how many were successfully mitigated by DHS? Uh, Senator, I can ask CBP to get back to you and your staff with the specific statistics. Well, we've been asking them for this since February, uh, persistently, and we are not getting the information. 
Brad Wigman, who is the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division, explained that Mexican cartels have used drones to drop bombs on their enemies. He also explained that the FBI has predicted that a drone will be used to attack the United States. Senator Portman also keyed in on the drones used by the U.S. government. Here's an example. According to a report by Washington Post, China's DJI is the leading provider of drones to U.S. law enforcement agencies, they say. Uh, DJI has servers in China. Uh, they have support from the Chinese government. When questioned about this, Wigman confirmed that the FBI has purchased Chinese-made drones, and Vinograd testified that DHS has also purchased Chinese-made drones. The witnesses did not go into specifics on how the U.S. government stops invasive drones, but offered to explain the details in a closed setting. Jason Perry, NTD News. A growing number of hosts are leaving a Spanish-language radio station. The station was recently bought by a group that's backed by billionaire George Soros. Nelson Rubio is the latest to announce his resignation from Miami-based Radio Mambi Tuesday after two other hosts did the same. Rubio said Radio Mambi has been the voice of the Cuban exile, the voice of conservative men and women who defend freedom and democracy, and that the community has felt betrayed by the acquisition. Radio Mambi is one of 18 radio stations in 10 cities across the U.S. that were recently purchased by the Latino Media Network. That purchase is currently being considered by the Federal Communications Commission. Earlier today, I spoke with Orlando Gutierrez Baranat, a coordinator with the humanitarian NGO Cuban Democratic Directorate, which is also based in Miami, for his view of the situation. Orlando Gutierrez Baranat, thank you so much for coming in on our show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, we've had three high-profile resignations from Radio Mambi recently all in protest against the station's takeover. What's your take on what's happening? Well, I think there are deep disagreements among the professionals there with the editorial direction um, that the stations may take once the sale is finalized. I'm not privy to, to the inner workings of what's going on in that newsroom, but I can tell by these well-known and talented hosts who are leaving, and these are people of principle, they have, uh, they have values, they don't want to be spokespersons for for a message that goes against the life experience of a good part of the South Florida Latin American community. You've said these Hispanic radio stations are a source of accurate information from Latin America, especially from Cuba, and that they also support humanitarian efforts there, all of which could be under threat with the new ownership. Could you elaborate on that a little? You know, from reading the statements, from reading the reports um, this group has, has issued, it's obvious to me this is a financial investment to gain some kind of political influence on the communication venues of the Hispanic community in Florida because it is a community that is, again, very defensive. It, it advocates for essential basic values, and it understands when there's a threat, to, when there's an ideological threat to those values anywhere it emerges. So... Um, I believe that this attempt at ideological colonization of our community should be resisted through all civic means. You know, we uh, these stations, I don't know with regards to internal U.S. politics, but with regards to what happens in Cuba and Latin America, these stations have very good journalism. They put out there the voices of the oppressed and the persecuted in Cuba on a consistent basis, and they help to mobilize the community to protest in defense of those voices. So I, I would hate to see um, the legitimate mobilization of people in this community of citizens for the defense of freedom under communist oppression of people who are persecuted, I'd hate to see it replaced by attempting to mobilize people for causes which are not part of our, of our very life, of our very existence, of, of the pain we feel daily knowing our countries are under this kind of oppression. Now, Monday was one year since the protest in Cuba against the communist regime. Tell me, what sort of role did the radio stations play in helping to get the information out about what was happening on the ground there? I think that's a very good question. I think the stations, the ones that we're discussing, but also other stations which have not been bought out, were essential in establishing links between Cubans and the island who were persecuted, the mothers, the sisters, the grandmothers of political prisoners, for example. They put their voices on the air throughout that day. And they also helped link up or bridge the activities we did here in commemoration of that date and in support of the ongoing citizen insurgency, they linked up 
our activities with what was going on inside Cuba, with what people tried to do in protest. So they served an essential uh, role in, in being a bridge uh, between Cubans in that very critical day. And that was a day when the entire community mobilized to, to remember July 11th. You said that you expect Cuban-Americans to stop listening to these radio stations. Do you think other Hispanic communities will also stop li listening if they knew who the owners were and why the hosts are resigning? That's a great question, too. I think, first of all, we have to see that that sale become final. That hasn't happened yet. It hasn't been approved by, by the FCC. Uh, and if we see that there's an editorial slant directed at, in some way, trying to undermine our unity and our values, we will carry out boycotts, we'll stop listening to the station, we'll carry out protests, all types of activities uh, in, in, in defense of our values and in defense of our fundamental unity within our diversity of, of our individual freedom, our identity, and our commitment to standing up for freedom in Cuba. There are many other stations in this community besides those, and there's a very plural uh, and open public space here in Miami where people can discuss and debate things. But we're very unified in, in denouncing what happens in Cuba, the human rights violations, and how this affects the rest uh, of the hemisphere. And with what's going on in Latin America, one country after the other falling into the hands of far left forces. There are many communities along with us, Venezuelans, Colombians, Nicaraguans, for example, Bolivians, who know that this threat to democracy throughout the region is coming from the regime in Cuba. And they stand with us, we stand unified. Altogether, these radio stations that are potentially going to be bought out reach about one-third of Latino Americans. Do you think these stations have the power to influence their viewpoints? I think that Hispanics are conservative. Conservative. What I mean by conservative is that for them, God, family, country are sacred values. And that's, that's across Hispanic communities. Hispanics in the U.S. are very loyal to the U.S. They're very patriotic. They may have different points of views about how far the state should go into the economy or the nature of social programs, that's natural. But they all oppose any system, any ideology which would undermine our unity of God, family, and values. And I think that what you're seeing is that Hispanics are voting according to who they are, according to what their identity is. And if they're finding more candidates in one party than another defending those values, then they will do so. I think that these stations are not, my, my opinion is that they're not trying to be commercially viable, they're trying to be politically influential. Uh, and they will find, in my opinion, at least in Miami, that if what they're pushing is an agenda of ideological uh, policies which undermine our, our, which undermine and subvert our standing as a unified community, then they will, they will not find it to be commercially viable. However, if they're willing to lose money just to make a political statement, then they can do so. Orlando Gutierrez Baranat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We reached out to Latino Media Network, but didn't hear back by airtime. And coming up, Detroit is reforming its cash bail laws. Soon the rule will be less money, less likely to stay in jail. NTD's Arian Pazdar talked to a former prosecutor about the latest bail reform. Every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. Many cities are walking back their bail reform. Not Detroit. The Motor City is now implementing bail reform. One interesting part of their practice, more income can mean more problems. 
In 2019, a lawsuit was filed on behalf of seven plaintiffs who said the only reason they remained in jail was because they couldn't afford bail. Now, Detroit's district court and bail reform advocates have agreed to settle a federal class action lawsuit by implementing bail reform. Today, we're putting an end to this unjust, unfair, and discriminatory system here in Detroit. Activists say that cash bail practices are unfair because people with money can purchase their freedom while poor people stay in jail. One part of the reform is that anyone making less than $27,000 per year will automatically be assumed to be unable to post bail. Mark Ruskin is a former FBI agent and former assistant district attorney. He tells NTD the new reforms mostly protect suspects but not victims. There was no evaluation as to what the risk to the victim might be. I mean, you have situations where, for example, in you know, domestic violence situations, where releasing a individual accused of, of domestic violence could pose a significant threat. He added that taking into account only a suspect's personal income is the wrong way to go. Not taking into account perhaps you know, other assets that the individual may have access to. And often, as often is the case, the assets are those of family members. Ruskin says that parents or grandparents often have the means to post bail and that suspects are much less likely to flee if the bail is posted by family members. He added that the reforms were brought about mostly by pro-suspect advocates rather than by people who try to protect society. Reporting by Ariane Pazdar, NTD News. Now to U.S. consumer prices, which surged 9.1% in June. It was the largest annual increase in more than four decades. Now shoppers are recalling the words of President Joe Biden, who one year ago assured Americans that inflation was temporary. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. At this supermarket in McLean, Virginia, shoppers like 70-year-old George McBride are astounded by high prices. Um, notice it in, you know, the basics like eggs and milk and and you go to the fruit aisle or the fresh vegetable aisle, there's nothing less than like three or four dollars per pound or per whatever. I mean, peaches are a dollar each. High inflation is a political risk for President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party heading into congressional elections in November. Many voters remember that one year ago, Biden said inflation was temporary. They were very late to the game. Um, and I don't think the administration's really put it as a very high priority. Virginia resident John Connor said the Federal Reserve could have acted quicker. But he added that inflation is just part of the economic cycle and will eventually improve. Well, I think the Federal Reserve said it was temporary, so I think maybe we could blame the Fed more than we can blame President Biden. Uh, they kept saying it was temporary for quite a while, and they finally had to change their tune, and now we have some serious interest rate hikes. Lisa Ross was shopping with her mother, Dana Birchfield. She said she had noticed a number of products were more expensive. I was just saying yesterday that I bought a six-pack of Diet Coke and it was over $8, and I remember it being five or something like that. And I've noticed it with wine prices. I've noticed it with dairy prices. Annual food prices are rising at their fastest pace since February 1981, and energy prices are posting their largest jump in more than 42 years. Snarled global supply chains and massive fiscal stimulus from governments earlier in the pandemic have driven inflation, and the ongoing war in Ukraine has also caused a spike in global food and fuel prices. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at NTD. Com. And coming up, gun makers and dealers in California may be facing legal problems in the near future. The governor signed a bill into law that will allow victims of shootings to sue the companies that produce and sell firearms. We'll hear what people are saying about it. Anis Cantor Freedom had some choice words for LeBron James, who commented on Brittany Griner's detention and the U.S. response to it. NTD's Dave Martin has that exchange. That and more coming up. Over to the West Coast, California's governor passed a law that allows victims of gun-related violence 
to sue gun manufacturers. NTD's Daniel Hall has what supporters and critics of the law are saying. Californians can now legally sue gun manufacturers if they are a victim of a shooting. Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill 1594 into law on Monday, which was authored by Assemblymember Phil Ting. I'll be signing a bill that will allow Californians to sue irresponsible gun manufacturers and distributors. If you've been hurt or a family member is a victim of gun violence, you can now go to court. A 2005 federal law protects gun manufacturers and dealers from lawsuits. It allows victims of firearms as well as cities to sue the firearms industry, manufacturers, dealers for negligence. Again, not, not if they're following the law, but for negligence and allows them to take matters into their own hands. California Attorney General Rob Bonta echoed Newsom's sentiment that the gun industry should not be immune from responsibility for the misuse of guns. The California Republican Assembly opposed the measure. They wrote on their website, Assembly Bill 1594 would allow governments and victims of violence involving firearms to sue firearm manufacturers or retailers for liability when firearms are used in incidents of deaths or injuries, even if they have broken no laws. Nine senators voted against the bill during the final legislative vote. To punitively punish firearms uh, providers or firearms retailers, uh, that's going to limit people's ability to obtain firearms. What we need to be focusing on is people who obtain firearms illegally. The California Republican Assembly warned that the bill would put firearm retailers and manufacturers out of business. The new state law will come into effect in July 2023. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And staying in the Golden State, despite California having one of the best stretches of land to grow crops in the nation, it's not easy to run a farm in the state. A Southern California family farm shared with NTD's Jackie Rios what difficulties they're facing coming from both inside and out. A lot of the produce we consume every day comes from places like Mexico, Chile, Peru, and elsewhere. And some of it even comes from right here in Irvine, California. But for how much longer? We visited Ann and Dan Manicero, third-generation farmers here in Orange County, to find out what's happening with family farms. The family said that no matter what they do, it's harder and harder to compete. We have high cost of labor and um, obviously the fuel and, and all of that stuff that's going on. Whereas when they bring produce in from, say, somewhere like Mexico or one of the other countries, they don't have the minimum wage and they don't have the regulation and all of the things that we face here being American farmers. She pointed out how much California pays compared to other states and even countries. Well, for instance, California, I believe we have the highest um, minimum wage in the country, and which is $15 an hour. When you compare that to, say, Mexico, they're paying $3 an hour as compared to $15. They're basically getting like $15 a day, whereas we're paying that per hour. On top of high wages, inflation is not only impacting the family's products, but also the cost of buying equipment to keep the farm in business. When you grow produce, everything goes in a box. That cost has gone up 50% in the last year, if you can believe that. That cost of that tractor just went up 30% uh, in the last year that we wanted to get. And they're not even available because there's supply issues with that. While subsidies may be available to some U.S. farmers, Manicero Farm says they're on their own. No, it's just an open market, supply and demand. If there's a lot, you, you, don't, get, you don't get a good price. If there's a very little short crop, you might get a better price, but there's no subsidies for any kind of produce right now. Since the conflict in Ukraine, headlines have recently come out of impending food shortages. There's no shortages yet. They haven't harvested the wheat and the corn crops in the Midwest. They could get wiped out. It could be 50% less than they expect. So they can't, I mean, right now they're working on last year's products and crops. So, but going forward, there could be, of course, shortages. According to the USDA, currently there are no food shortages. As for their farm, they hope to keep it in the family. This is a designated green space, and hopefully it will always stay that way because um, we're running out of out of farmland. We're, we're an urban farmer, and the more that the urban building encroaches on us, the less land we have to be able to farm. The Manacero said... They hope the community can help support not just them, but other growers in the Golden State. 
I just want to say you should support your local farms, especially in the way things are going now. You need the local farms. You want to eat healthy. You want to eat fresh produce and stay away from all the processed stuff. Orange County was once dominated by agriculture, and although the landscape has changed dramatically, Manicero Farms is doing all he can to hold on and keep the family farm alive. Jackie Rios, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. WNBA star Brittany Griner's trial in Russia continued today with character witnesses testifying on her behalf. Both the head of her Russian team as well as one of her teammates took the stand in support of Griner. Griner pled guilty last week to drug possession charges acknowledging that she had no criminal intent and that the mistake was made in her hurry to pack. In Russia though a guilty plea doesn't automatically end the trial. She faces up to 10 years in prison. The case is scheduled to resume tomorrow. Meanwhile, NBA superstar LeBron James was critical of the U.S.'s attempts to free Griner in a trailer for his talk show, The Shop, Uninterrupted. Arguably the greatest player of all time, James questioned how she can feel like America has her back. He goes on to say that he would be wondering if he even wanted to go back to America. He then clarified his comments on Twitter. But his comments caught the attention of former NBA player Enos Freedom, who responded by saying in part, you are free to leave buddy, or you can even volunteer for an exchange for her. Some people literally have no idea what it is like to live in a dictatorship. Freedom, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize earlier this year, has previously spoken out against repressive governments such as China's Communist Party. In baseball, the Kansas City Royals play tonight against the Toronto Blue Jays in Toronto, but without the services of 10 of their 26 players who are unvaccinated against COVID-19, which is required to enter Canada. The Royals will be without two-time All-Star Whit Merrifield, current All-Star Andrew Benatendi, plus three other hitters, both of their catchers, and a trio of pitchers for the four-game series. The players were put on the restricted list, meaning they will lose pay and service time. The team will have to fill their roster using their minor league system, but can do so without being restricted to their expanded 40-man roster. The result will likely mean a promotion of young prospects making their major league debuts. The Royals are currently in last place in the AL Central, while Toronto is in fourth in the very competitive AL East. At the British Open today, Tiger Woods struggled early with two bogeys and two double bogeys among his first seven holes at the old course at St. Andrews. Woods would recover slightly to get birdies on holes 9 and 10. Meanwhile, the early leader was 25-year-old Cameron Young. Young currently ranked 17th, birdied four of his first six holes and finished with an 8-under 64. Other first-round notables include Rory McIlroy, who finished 6-under, as well as live golfers Dustin Johnson at 4-under and Phil Mickelson at even par. The second round begins tomorrow. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, political chaos in Italy as the ruling coalition falls apart. The country's prime minister tries to resign, while the president urges him to stay and reassess the situation. And France celebrates Bastille Day, but this year the war in Ukraine overshadowed the festivities. Stay tuned for the details when we return. speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi said he'll resign earlier today. That's after the largest political party in his coalition government refused to support an inflation relief bill. Here's what a member of that party said. 
This bill contains a controversial item. I'm talking about the article concerning the garbage incinerator. It has nothing, nothing to do with the relief. We suggested to the government to take it out from the bill and put it in another bill, but they told us no. This means to carry on without a sense of responsibility. The bill was meant to address skyrocketing energy prices in the country. But the five-star movement political party boycotted the vote, throwing the coalition into crisis. Afterward, Draghi offered his resignation to the president, who's the country's ceremonial head of state. In a statement, Draghi said the National Unity Coalition that backed this government no longer exists. But the president later rejected the resignation and asked Draghi to address parliament instead. Draghi assumed office in February of last year. He's Italy's sixth prime minister in 10 years. This is a developing story, and we will keep you updated. And French President Emmanuel Macron presided over the celebrations for the Bastille Day holiday in Paris. The annual military parade was overshadowed by the Ukraine war, with an announcement by Macron to boost military spending. NTD's France correspondent Dave de Vivas sent us this report. An annual tradition. Arriving in an open-top vehicle, the French president waved at the waiting crowd this July 14th as military personnel on horseback paraded on the Champs-Élysées Avenue. Strong sunshine and high temperatures didn't discourage the French to attend their National Day parade. Some of them drove for several hours. It was important for us to be here, because this is an event not to be missed. As French people, I believe, it is important to support our country. I think it's important to let people know that France is a military country, a country that can go into battle if needed. Even if our boy is in the army, we don't want him to go to war. But we know that it can happen. We are aware of that, and so is he. Troops from Eastern European NATO members lead the parade, in nod to the war in Ukraine. French servicemen, including from the Army, Navy, Foreign Legion and Mounted Republican Guard, marched past the president and the crowd. The day before, Macron, in an address to the troops, promised the nation to allot over 40 billion pounds for the military in 2025. War is returning fully and cruelly on European soil, and it reminds us of the tragedies of history. Bastille Day was also the occasion for the president to address the French people in a TV interview. He accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of cutting off gas supplies to Europe. Macron said Russia would be using gas as a weapon of war. He said we want to stop this war without going to war ourselves. On the domestic front, Macron suffered his first major defeat since his re-election in April. The National Assembly this week rejected a bill requiring travelers to show proof of COVID vaccination at the border. It appears the president has to contend with a strong opposition to every bill his government presents to the Assembly for the remainder of his term. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. French senators said the chaos outside the national stadium that marred the Champions League football final was due to a series of mistakes by police and officials and not the actions of previously blamed Liverpool fans. They urged French authorities to draw lessons from the incident as France is to host the Summer Olympics in two years. More on this from NTD's Eddie Aitken. A French Senate report on Wednesday slammed organizational failings for disorder and crime at May's Champions League football final between Liverpool and Real Madrid. It's a succession of dysfunction that took place on the administrative and decision-making level, which is quite vague, that no one really felt responsible. Lafon blamed a general lack of coordination, saying there was a malfunction at every stage. The May 28th match at Paris's Stade de France Stadium was delayed after people forcefully held back people trying to enter the ground. Riot police sprayed tear gas on supporters, including women and children. Liverpool fans, such as Liverpool Mayor Steve Rotherham, also said they were robbed and assaulted by criminals from the Paris suburbs. France's interior minister initially blamed the presence of up to 40,000 supporters, allegedly mainly Liverpool fans, without tickets or with forged tickets for the chaos. 
but less than 2,500 forged tickets were identified at the stadium. If the fake tickets contributed in disturbing the flow of events, it couldn't be considered in any case to be the sole or main cause of it. Senators regretted the automatic deletion of CCTV footage of events outside the Stade de France, since officials did not request the seizure of the footage early enough. Lafon apologized to Liverpool and Real Madrid fans, saying they were victims and not responsible for the events. Liverpool supporters have provided 9,000 testimonies and some testified to the French Senate. Liverpool fan group Spirit of Shankly responded to the report with a statement saying, we want a full apology from the French government with a complete retraction of the lies purported on their behalf on and since 28th of May 2022. I will continue to lobby to achieve it. The trouble has also marred France's image as a host of major sporting events, with the country due to stage the 2024 Olympics. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Ukraine, the United Nations and Turkey have hailed progress at talks aiming to resume Black Sea grain exports. The exports have been blocked by Russia and have created a risk of a grain shortage for millions. In Ukraine, some farmers have to brave shelling to harvest their crops. It's easier to be inside the harvester, says this one, because you can't hear the blasts so much. But a lot of the produce the farmers bring in is stuck in the country. Some 20 million tonnes of grain sits in silos at Odessa port amid a Russian blockade. On Thursday, it seemed a deal to resume exports could be close. Talks involving Ukraine, Russia, Turkey and the United Nations took place in Istanbul. Now Turkish Defence Minister Hulusi Akar says a deal is close. We have seen that an agreement has been reached on many technical matters, including establishing a joint coordination centre carrying out joint controls at the entrance and exit of the harbours and ensuring the safety of the routes of the ships that will carry grain and other types of food. Turkey says an agreement will be signed next week when all parties meet again. United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres was more cautious, saying only that there were signs of momentum. There was no immediate comment from Moscow, but Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also said there was progress. A deal is seen as vital for global food security, with Ukraine and Russia both normally major exporters of wheat and other produce. The UN is also working to facilitate Russian grain exports, which have been hit as ship owners prove reluctant to operate in the region. Coming up, the Supreme Beef Champion is announced at the Great Yorkshire Show, one of the biggest agricultural events in England. And if you missed the biggest and brightest supermoon of the year, don't worry. We'll take a look at the stunning footage captured off the eastern coast of Greece after this short break. At the Great Yorkshire Show in Northern England, champion cattle took part in the Grand Parade, with one taking the crown as the Supreme Beef Champion. NTD's Jane Werrell has more for us. The Supreme Beef Champion goes to this British blonde breed. She leads a parade of around 150 cattle in the main ring, one of the highlights of the Great Yorkshire Show. Among them is this distinctive breed, a favourite for many, the Highland. This is the Charolais, marking its 60th anniversary this year, as well as the Shorthorn, which marks its 200-year anniversary. The Shorthorn breed is native to Durham in the northeast of England. We caught up with some board members from the Shorthorn Society before the parade. The Shorthorn herd book was set up by a gentleman Mr Coates set up the herd book 200 years ago and that was the first recorded breeding of cattle as a breed society and so that's why the shorthorn is the longest recognized breed of cattle in the world it's a breed that's brought farmers more than just business i've fallen in love with the breed dad's passionate about the breed my kids are really involved in the breed and my son james is taking a lot of the decisions the breeding decisions now it's given me a network of friends that I wouldn't have had. So 
as much as it's about making money and, the, and, and we sell bulls and females um, to make money, we're, we're in the business to make money, it's about that wider network and what that breed has given me as a person and, and can, continues to give people. Um, we had 70 kids taking part in the stock judging yesterday out in the, in the ring there to see the next generation coming through is really inspiring and that you know, from from the, me and myself and the other board members sitting there it really it pushes us on to to make sure that we yeah we continue to develop the breed for everyone else and this is one aspect of, of the breed and uh, show the showing side of things but for me the highlight would be going out on an early sunday or saturday morning with nobody about and um, just walking through my cattle and spending time with them his son works on the breed too. I think maybe a few years ago there would have been a lot of people would have gone for the more continental breeds, so your Simmentals and your Limousins and your Charlies. And I think now people are starting to see that with the price of fertilizer and the price of feed going up so much, you know, an easy fleshing cattle beast like a shorthorn that can do it off grass is it's going to be a lot more profitable in the future. The Grand Cattle Parade will be back in the main ring on Friday afternoon, when the Dairy Champion will be revealed. Jane Warrell, NTD News, Harrogate. Astronomy enthusiasts in Europe yesterday were delighted by the biggest and brightest supermoon of the year. On the eastern coast near Athens, the moon cast a fiery glow across the sea. This month's moon is called the Buck Moon, according to the old farmer's almanac, due to the full growth of the antlers of the male deer in the month of July. It is also known as the Thunder Moon because thunderstorms are so frequent during this month. Supermoons are characterized by full moons whose orbit is close to Earth, making them appear bigger and brighter than regular full moons. July's supermoon is the third of this year and the closest to the Earth. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.